0: I'm Emma Gunnar Wardner, although you can call me Emma Guns, and in this podcast conversation I want to get to the bottom of one of those topics that can feel confusing and bamboozling, and today I'm talking narcissism with the person widely thought to be the authority on the subject, clinical psychologist Dr. Ramani Devazula.
1: The lack of justice and how trauma survivors do need some form of justice, right? And when it comes to narcissistic relationships in that sort of, sort of what we consider sort of that kind of fundamental level of justice, right? That people don't get that sometimes everything keeps going well for the narcissist. It's this gray area between the genuinely nice person a person is, empathy, and in the name of empathy, giving in to the narcissistic stuff because it's what we would do with a healthy person. But the the issue is, is that what we're not talking about, what we've never really talked about sufficiently, is how this affects other people. Their conduct, their dismissiveness, their minimization, their entitlement, all of it, their, their, all of it, it still hurts.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
1: that's com.
0: This isn't Dr. Ramani's first visit to the podcast and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome her back to the show to dig a little deeper into a topic that's way more complex, nuanced and layered than I think any of us would like it to be because let's face it, there's sometimes nothing as satisfying as declaring, oh her, she's a narcissist, open and shut case as if that somehow solves and explains everything. But that is a trap we mustn't fall into and Dr. Ramani is going to help us avoid this seductive little misstep. Dr. Ramani's latest book, It's Not You, How to Identify and Heal from Narcissistic People is her latest book on this particular subject. She has also penned Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist and Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement and Incivility. The fact this is Dr. Ramani's third book on the topic is indicative of how broad the subject is, how much there is to it and why labelling someone a narcissist just because they are behaving like a bit of a self-involved prima donna doesn't necessarily mean that they warrant the title. And this latest book answers some of the most pertinent questions on the subject. And if you're listening to this and you feel as though you've been on the receiving end of a narcissist, or you are on the receiving end of a narcissist, then don't worry. We'll refine what that actually means and when it's appropriate to use it during the conversation. And it's likely you'll find comfort in this latest book because it helps you become gaslight resistant, steer clear of narcissists and how to stop attracting self-obsessed people into your life. This is a complex topic, so I'm going to share links to my other conversations with Dr. Ramani in the podcast show notes as well as the links to her other books and of course to her YouTube. If you want to know who the narcissist is in the Sex and the City reboot and just like that, her channel is the one to watch. But without any further ado, welcome back to the podcast. How are you?
1: It's I'm so I'm fine. Emma, thank you for the glowing yeah. introduction and I am so happy to see you again. I hope you've been be, been doing well. I've been doing well. I think because
0: I've read your books and spoken to you and I think as we spoke about last time, um I was definitely uh, I think you very gently and kindly helped me realize I was an enabler. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I've been working on that. <laughs>
1: It's a tough one because I think that, you know, it's it's sort of this gray area. I mean, it's an interesting place to begin. It's this gray area between the genuinely nice person a person is, empathy and in the name of empathy giving in to the narcissistic stuff because it's what we would do with a healthy person the way we give in to a narcissistic person right who's pushing pushing and pushing and we just like let me give them another chance let me figure it you know let me put myself in their shoes let me understand them all that stuff very healthy stuff to do right and it's stuff that works beautifully in our healthy relationships the problem is when we do that in a narcissistic relationship it is not being, it's not, there's no reciprocity. They're not doing that for us, number one. And number two, they will take advantage of it and we keep doing it. And so in that way, it's almost like we're this perfect source of supply. We're a well that never runs dry. But the problem is for them, the rain doesn't fill us back up, if, if you will. So it gets to be this tricky space of the, <clears throat> the enablers are often really just nice people.
0: True. But I think the other thing that you really helped me see last time was um, there was something quite manipulative and selfish about being an enabler, which I had to kind of take accountability for. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. again, that's work that I continue Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, it's true.
0: Okay, so I think even though there is a previous conversation that we've had and we've gone through some of this before, I think for people who might be finding this for the first time, it might be quite helpful to. First of all, frame you. I mean, your work is incredible. You've been doing this for a really long time. You you do type in narcissist in the internet and your name comes up very quickly because the way that you speak about it and the work that you've done in really raising awareness is, is huge and vast. But can is, is there a specific definition? Because in all of the questions that I've received from listeners since I said that you were coming back on the show, it seems to me from my non-psychologist brain that a lot of people are operating on a very specific um, definition of narcissism slash narcissist but everyone's definition is slightly different
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. would
0: you say that that's something you see
1: It's unfortunate, right, because we kind of do have a definition and most people are not psychologists or personality researchers, so they're not going to be working off that same definition, right? So narcissism, the word narcissism, that's describing a personality style, not necessarily a personality disorder. Okay. So narcissism is a personality style, meaning it's stable. It shows up in a variety of situations and it's persistent. That means that the person isn't, is sometimes narcissistic and sometimes not. It's constant, right? Their behavior may shift, but personality remains constant. And the person, this personality is characterized by a person who has variable and low empathy variable or low empathy, I should say, they're entitled, they're grandiose, they're arrogant, they need validation, they need admiration, so they seek it quite often. They're very selfish. Uh, They are... they can be very superficial, vain, emotionally shallow. Um, they they will often engage in tactics in their relationships, including manipulation, gaslighting, anything to allow them to maintain a sense of power. This can also include minimizing and trivializing and dismissing the other person. But the definition of narcissism is the stuff I said at the top. It's that all that stuff that hangs together, but it's all the stuff. It's not just selfishness. If a person is selfish, they're selfish. If they're as strange as it sounds, can a person be selfish and not entitled? Sure, right? A person could potentially be selfish about their time, but communicate very clearly about that, right? And you and they don't owe you anything. It's not like they they're you're in a relationship with them. It could be a friend or something like that who says, Hey, listen, this is you know, I'm, I need my own room on this trip because I, I don't even think I'd consider that selfish to be honest with you, but maybe they, they make their needs known, but they'll say, and obviously I'm going to pay more and all this, other. Like, it's not, there's no, like, I expect my own room and all of you are going to subsidize it. That would be entitled. These things hang together. Even I was having a little bit of a hard time finding a, a example of a selfish person who's not entitled. These things overlap a lot, but you need them all. And so that's why you can have pieces of this and, and not, ha- not have all of it. Classic example, Emma, is the people who say, uh, my, my boyfriend cheated on me. He's a narcissist. And also, your boyfriend cheated on you, and I'm so sorry because that's terrible and it's a betrayal. Tell me more about your boyfriend. You telling me he cheated on you doesn't tell me he's a narcissist. It tells me he cheated on you. And those two things aren't the same. And I think that's the mistake people are making. Somebody behaves like a jerk he's a narcissist. Somebody cheats on you, they're a narcissist. Maybe, maybe not. Um, Am I willing to take the bet? Sure. Is the probability that a cheating boyfriend is more likely to be narcissistic than a non-cheating boyfriend? The probability is much higher, but it's not a definite. That's what narcissism is.
0: And I think that's why it can be so complicated. And when I was doing research for this particular conversation, there's such a want a need to sort of be able to put it in a list, like to do tick boxes. These things make that person, mm-hmm. like if you yeah. score three or higher, then definitely a narcissist. But equally, I think one of the things about this book, um, well, I wanted to ask you why this book in particular, but one of my observations was this isn't about the narcissist who we give a huge amount of time to, like trying to define their behavior, trying to assess all of the different This is about you. This is about the person, which I think is a, would you say that's a bit more of a gear shift in terms of the conversation around
1: narcissism? It is a gear shift. And part of the reason for this gear shift, Emma, is I think we have enough books on narcissism. Hell, I've written, I've written a couple of them, right? And I I mean, you put them all together and there's hundreds and hundreds of books on just narcissism. I think we got this. We understand it, we understand how it shows up, we understand where it comes from. Probably the last frontier of narcissism is figuring out what it looks like in the brain, but even that research shows that it doesn't always show up the same way because narcissism takes lots of different forms, right? The core elements of narcissism, a selfish person who lacks empathy and is very entitled, that cuts across all the types of narcissism, even back to that definition. It's on a continuum from, you know, mild to severe, But the the issue is, is that what we're not talking about, what we've never really talked about sufficiently is how this affects other people. And it's a real issue. This is a real tricky place in mental health because by and large, when a person has something going on, pick it, depression, anxiety, addiction, eating disorder, personality issue, we focus on the person with the issue. That's our, right, that's who's coming into our office. This narcissism thing has brought up a whole new issue, which is it may very well be causing more harm to the people who are around the narcissistic person. And so the therapist is traditionally gonna approach that person, like Emma, if you were my patient and you came and you were and and I was a traditional therapist not informed by all the stuff I know about narcissism and you were talking about a toxic relationship and you're really sad and you're really confused and you're really anxious and you feel helpless and you blame yourself traditionally the therapist would focus on well Emma let's work on that anxiety let's work on that self-blame let's find new ways you could think that's nonsense You are feeling this way because someone's doing something to you. That's why you feel this way. And if I can either, A, in an ideal world, you're not in that relationship, well, then great, you're not going to feel that way. But even if I can teach you, hey, this is what's happening in this relationship, like you said, even from one podcast episode, you're like, oh, I might be doing some enabling, and that's taught me something about myself. If you realize that, oh, this is their behavior, I No matter what I do, we're ending up in the same place. It's almost like you're in a maze and four pathways all get you to the end. I'm like, no matter which pathway you take, you're getting to that same place. And so that piece of it is why writing about what happens to people is so important because there's a lot of people walking around really, really confused, whether it's their partner, their parent, their adult child, their friend, their boss, a family member, or all of the above. They're walking around saying, maybe it's me. That's why it's called It's Not You. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's me. There's something wrong with me. What is, I should be able to figure this out. And if everyone's saying to them, everyone from therapists to positivity, optimism, spirituality sites on the internet to doctors, you name it, saying, well, you're going to have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm like, yeah, no, it's not this. I wish it was that simple. I wish there was something I could do directly with the survivor. And in many ways, this book is me pulling all that stuff out. Here's the stuff you can do, but, but I might be able, you're going to have to understand the climate. Like I can give you all these skills, but you have to understand what you're dealing with. So this book does both of those things, but it really, this one is for the survivors. If you're curious about narcissism, I only have three little chapters about it there just to orient people, the big stuff. The last two thirds of the book are all about how do you heal? How do you deal with this? How do you deal with the pain? How do you get to the other side? How do you figure this out when it's happening to you again? All of that. Because I think
0: uh, what you say is so perfect. And if it was somebody turning up in a doctor's office, psychologist, or just a GP with evidence of physical abuse, Mm -hmm. you would look at all the parts of the equation If you were a child and you had negligent parents, you would uh, obviously look at all parts of the equation. But I think uh, what it really hammered home to me, which I hadn't really fully grasped before, is that this is almost like an invisible kind of abuse that when you present, you can just look broken. It can look like self-esteem, but it's actually all of those things about you that have become smaller or quieter have mm-hmm. been eroded by someone else's actions even though you have participated in that dynamic which is where i think the
1: yes it can get confusing <laughs> that's where it gets confusing so you know there's participation and there's participation right and it's like big p small p and I don't consider somebody being in a relationship participation, especially if they don't know the ground rules, right? So, you know, when you go to the doctor's office, they give you an informed consent form. And you, that form, if you actually read it, would tell you the risks, what can happen, what can't happen, how much money you're going to have to pay, all the things. And you sign that saying, I got it. I understand what I'm getting into, right? We signed informed, we signed informed consents all the time in a legal relationship, something like that. Now, imagine if we sign them when we date someone. I am, you know, somebody literally said, I'm deeply selfish. It's going to always be about me unless I had a good day. Then I'm willing to listen to you. Um, I do think I'm more special than you. So I'm going to expect one set of rules for me and another set of rules for you. If I don't get my way, I'm going to figure out if somebody made that clear to you, we wouldn't get into the relationship right and what's even worse about these relationships is the narcissistic person thinks they're a great person they actually do i'm this i'm the best boyfriend you've ever had i'm the best thing that ever happened to you right them which really which is really sort of a diss on someone because why would you i mean thanks yes you're a good thing in my life but why wouldn't other great things happen to me i'm a solid person right so but but the whole idea is that by even the, your analogy about physical abuse was an interesting one because we even get it wrong there. If a person comes in with physical abuse, we will treat it as more of a tragedy. Oh my gosh, this person broke your bone or you have a bruise on your face, right? I guarantee you every physically abused person on the planet is also being emotionally abused, by the way. And But yet, usually the first, the first question a physical abuse survivor has traditionally faced, maybe less so now, but has traditionally been, why don't you leave? And that question right there is why so many people in these relationships suffer, because it's not that simple. And even if we lift physical abuse, which is a more severe manifestation, we stick with emotional abuse, which to me is equally severe. When I say physical, I mean in terms of maybe life and limb, but I think emotional abuse can do just as much harm to a person. We still have that, if it's so bad, why don't you leave? And let's just take out the practical stuff, money and culture and children, and all those things that can practically make it hard. These relationships aren't bad every day. Mm-hmm. There are actually days this relationship is good. It works. You are on the same page. You laugh. You have good sex because you, your your boat is going to run on their tides. If you can go along with that, you'll, let's say they had a great day or it's Friday afternoon and they let the office out early and, and it's all wonderful or they got a compliment, whatever it may be, that cheerful person comes and you see the person who originally love-bombed you. You see the person from the beginning, or at least you see somebody who's not mistreating you. And so for a lot of people, most people don't want to be alone. They'll say, this is working. You know, what am I complaining about? It's no worse than my friend's relationship or the people down the street. And then if you have enough of those good days... It becomes an offset. That's why people don't leave. They're trauma bonded. They're confused. And they've been told that all the bad things in the relationship are their fault. So they actually believe, like you said, you're participating in the relationship. I actually don't believe a person's really participating in the relationship unless they know what they're up against. And Emma, if after being educated about narcissism, Okay, and if a person were to say to me, I've given him my whole dog and pony show, this is what it is, this is how, it's never going to change, radical acceptance, the whole thing. And they say, I don't believe you. I can change them. You're negative Nelly, Dr. Romney. I'm not listening to you. I think you're a hack. Fine. And they go out there and they keep, why aren't you listening to me? They say to the narcissist, why don't you know and they keep doing that, yeah, maybe I'll say then they're participating. When they've been given all the tools and they're still throwing themselves in the fray because they think that this isn't what it is, despite all evidence to the contrary, I might say that they're participating. But I'm not convinced that the other people in these relationships are always necessarily participating. I just don't think they've been given the playbook.
0: That's very interesting. And it makes me wonder whether a survivor will have a delayed reaction to the relationship and the abuse the abuse once they're out of it once they see it clearly with 2020 hindsight vision if that you're not going you don't realize what you're participating in because you don't understand the playbook but when you leave and you you see it clearly you realize what you have it's like a delayed trauma if you like or a uh-huh. delayed impact is that sometimes a characteristic of what survivors will go through
1: so one thing we know, especially in more problematic, you know, severe, moderate, severe to severe narcissistic relationships is that in order to survive, seeing the relationship is actually kind of dangerous, right? It's almost too overwhelming to see the dynamics because people say, okay, I gotta go. So we like, we'll talk about this later. I can't deal with this now. There's too much going on, right? And so at the in the first break in the weather, as it were, whatever that might be for some people, It may not be until their kids are 18 years old or enough to, old enough to live independently. Like whatever that moment is when they can say, okay, this is not okay. Or really something terrible happens. There's an infidelity or there finally is physical violence or there's financial mismanagement in a way that's put the family at risk. Sometimes it takes some sort of event like that. But sometimes, as you said, it takes getting out of the relationship, and even that can take a minute. When we are in situations, Emma, where it's unsafe to see the truth, a classical example of that is children who are being abused. So no child is able to ever create that like, okay, well, my mom has no empathy and is deeply entitled and grandiose and manipulative. A Kid can't say that. All the kid knows is that person over there, I've got to attach them. That's my mommy. That's my daddy. That's my parent. I have to love them. They need, have attachment needs, and those and a child are survival needs, right? So the child is going to do whatever the child needs to do to get those needs met. No matter how negligent or, or tra- traumatizing or terrible the parent is, that child will typically go to the place of trying to meet the parent's needs. Even if the parent's needs is, you need to sit and be quiet and never make be a problem, so the child learns to feed themselves, the child learns to soothe themselves, but nobody ever shows them those things, right? Mm-hmm. That's what happens on the child side. The child blames themselves all every single time. And that turns into issues with self-esteem, poor self-concept, not knowing who they are, not knowing how to regulate themselves, a low sense of self-worth, believing that they're only as good as what they can do for another person. That's what having a narcissistic parent or a or being raised under such conditions of adversity, can do to a person. Now, when we leap that into adulthood, you know, you see, again, it's a similar pattern. We do tend to blame ourselves. Very rarely is someone going to go right to, well, you said that to me. No, that's entirely up to you. You're gaslighting and manipulating me. You love this person. You care about this person. And we feel a loyalty to the people we love and care about. And so we come up with justifications so we can maintain the status quo. When a person gets, again, whether the big bad thing happened, sometimes there's an accumulation. So much stuff happens in a narcissistic relationship that a person can't do it anymore. Whatever it may be, just there's there's a penny drop moment. And the penny drop moment is strange. It's not always a big thing. It's not always an infidelity or an affair. Sometimes it's as simple as... For the 700th time, they didn't, you know, um, I don't know, take the trash out. And now the tra- that now there's a mice or rats or something like that. Something happened. It was the trash. And, and people will say at the end of the day, it was the dishwasher that ended this relationship. It was the trash cans. It was whatever. And people say, that's ridiculous. How could you blow up a relationship? I'm like, it was never the trash cans. It was a hundred times on the trash cans. It was a lifetime or decades of neglect. And so I think that the, then a person sees it. And I always say that there is that moment for a survivor. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so then the love kind of goes and and people do blame themselves. I'm a terrible person. I should have been able to figure this out because our whole relationship industry, Emma, is like, well, if you love someone enough, you'll figure it out. Mm. Not so sure. So anyhow, that was a long answer to your question.
0: No, I I love it. And I'm really interested by the penny drop moment because I had one of those. Mine wasn't a romantic relationship, but it was a friendship. And it was many years ago now. But the thing that when you were just discussing it then, again, penny drop moment, it was just in that second, I had a system update. And all of a sudden I was incompatible with that dynamic immediately within within a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And what I've come to wonder in the many years since is, is that because on some level, I knew all along that I wasn't being treated the way that I felt was fair. And it took it happening for the however the nth time for me to say, oh, oh, that's my limit. Done.
1: It's an interesting question. It's something I actually write about in the book. So that's why people have to read the books. I get into it at length. There's a lot of reasons for the, the proverbial penny drop moment. In the simplest form, Emma, people don't see the the reality of the situation because it's psychologically not safe. By not safe I don't mean cuz you think someone's going to physically hurt you. I mean psychologically it's a sense of now the status quo has to change. Now I may not have this friendship and whoever else is associated with that friendship. We it means something has to change. And believe it or not as much as you might any of us might think of ourselves as adventurers we're, human beings are very routine oriented. We wouldn't survive otherwise, right? Whatever our, our our routine might be on the road, but we love routine. So there's a couple of ways to understand this so-called penny drop moment, right? One of them is this idea of betrayal blindness. Betrayal blindness is a theory that was developed by someone named Dr. Jennifer Fried. And her idea, her, her thought was that, her work has shown, that we are almost... From a, from a safety perspective, we cordon off seeing things that are going to change the status quo, that are going to make us less safe. When we're betrayed by someone we trust, child with a parent, person with a partner, person by society, quite frankly, we we don't see it. We don't see the truth of the situation. And it is for this reason that sometimes people don't remember some marked betrayals in their lives because to have seen it would mean a shift in worldview so massive it's too much. And only by getting out of the situation, and man, this is why I'll work with clients years, years in, they'll say, Dr. Romney, I just remembered something. I forgot about it for years. And they'll say, da, 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 happened. How did that happen? That's a great example of betrayal blindness. They're out now. You now, it's almost like when you, you know, you you go higher and higher, higher, like the way a drone takes a picture. You can see elements of the landscape you could never see if you were standing within the landscape. Okay, that's one piece. There's also really interesting work by a woman named Dr. Yanya Lalich who works with cult survivors. Cult, a cult relationship and a narcissistic relationship are the same thing. The cult just has more rules and bells and whistles, but they're really run the same way. And in her work, what she says, it's this concept of breaking the shelf. You know, if you have too many books on a shelf or too many things hanging on the rod in the closet, it breaks. And that's what she found is that if you get too many pieces of evidence that pile on that shelf, whatever they may, excuse me, whatever they may be, the shelf breaks, the rod breaks, and now you have to see it, right? So all of these things, and sometimes, frankly, Emma, it's as simple as a, a friend, or even a therapist saying, gosh, that was a lot like that, the way they just treated you, that wasn't okay. And you might be like, that wasn't okay. And you have no framework for that because you've made it okay in your head. But mm. an external observer you trust says, yeah, no, that's actually not okay. Now, all of a sudden you do an accounting of everything else in the relationship. You're like, oh God, there's a lot of not okay here. And so any number of these things can come together to, in essence, open the curtains, let the light in, and then you can see it. And that's what really brings the penny drop moment. Did we always know at some level? That could be argued. Because I think if you ask anyone in a narcissistic relationship, they'll say, in, especially ones we choose, I'd say less so the family relationships. We don't choose them, but relationships we choose. People will say intuitively, this, there's something that wasn't right about this. And so it's it's like the splinter that the scar cre- go, goes over, but it's always that little bump, right? You know, someone could actually go in there, get that splinter out, it'll heal properly. And so it, I think people will say that they've always known it, well, there was something not right, but they couldn't put word to it and they didn't want to change the status quo. So I agree with you. I think people know we just don't give people permission to give voice to those intuitions.
0: And you also use a word about the, sort of the aftermath of, of these mm-hmm. relationships in the book, which is grief and the fact that it it, it requires healing after mm-hmm. these narcissistic relationships. And I remember distinctly the first time we spoke and even listeners, if you go and watch Dr. Roman's YouTube channel, you'll see this very evidently. You are a champion for the broken person who has been on the receiving end of this
1: mm-hmm. and almost
0: like the, the one person shouting going, they're, they're in trouble, like we need to help them. And to actually, I think, acknowledge that there is a grieving period. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before, and specifically when it comes to friendships ending, we are very good at being compassionate to our friends who are coming out of a romantic relationship. But if two women, my audience is predominantly women, two women fall out, it's kind of a, mm, yeah, it happened. But actually, those can be as heartbreaking and as devastating. Absolutely. Now, whether mm-hmm. there is a narcissistic element to that, whatever, but it but it sort of sits in the same family, if you like. Of once they're done, they're kind of swept to one side in the sort of the same mm-hmm. way. They're not given mm-hmm. they're not given any compassion, mm-hmm. but you pour compassion onto this, and by acknowledging that they do require a grieving period and that there is a process of healing that has to take place, I think yeah. that's really important for people to know.
1: Yeah, I, I think that you know we we you know they. they we've both often annexed the word grief to only mean when somebody dies, right? If you say grief, we think someone's dead. So when we use it for anything else, people feel as though, in fact, there's a term that's used called disenfranchised grief, right? Or an ambiguous loss, all these terms that speak to losses that other people don't consider to be grief. And the loss of a relationship and sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll cut people slack if it's a divorce. We're like, yeah, that's a big loss. As though codifying it with a marriage made it more important or relevant. But you, you raise such an important point here. Is, number one, we don't give friendship the credit it deserves. I think, heck, we don't even support people enough through relational breakups that are not marriages. When it comes to friendship, we really, really put that in the cheap seats. And yet anytime a relationship ends there is grief right loss equals grief when and the more the more significant the loss the greater the grief right death being the ultimate loss we can no longer talk to this person be with this person if we cared cared about them or what goes with them but we can also lose and we can lose narratives we can lose hope and those things also carry grief but the no matter what grief requires time there is no fast forward button. There is no rushing it. The best analogy I can think of is if a person is coming out of a surgery and the doctor says six weeks, six weeks, you need to rest, not get out of bed, whatever. And people say six weeks already out of your mind. That's forever. And I cannot tell you how many people like in week one, they're like, this is never going to get better. Like I might as well just, this, this is over. My life is over. And six weeks later, eight weeks, somewhere between six and eight weeks, they're fine, right? The human body heals. Nature heals, right? That's the natural process of nature is to heal, but it doesn't happen overnight. Even if a branch is going to regrow, even if an arm of a starfish is going to regrow, it takes a minute. And the same thing happens with grieving. We have to go through the process of loss. And that usually means slowing ourselves down, being gentle with ourselves, getting rest, um, recognizing that the feelings are gonna come and go and we can't stop them, that we will be hit by a wave of sadness. Stop, sit with the sadness. I mean, we just all, we're all trying to work like machines these days and that we shouldn't feel. And friendship, it's even worse because people think, well, it's not like my heart's broken. Well, actually your heart is broken because you trusted this person and you valued this person. You might have confided in this person. Now they're not in your life. And I think we, and listen, a narcissist, a loss of a friendship could be due to narcissism or not. It's not always going to be that, but. It's still heartbreaking. I have to say, though, I think if the loss is due to narcissism, it's more heartbreaking because you're so confused and you often blame yourself. And so you feel even worse as though somehow you're responsible, which is what happens more often when it's a narcissistic relationship.
0: I think something that you've talked about in the past that I I remember at the time when we spoke about it, sort of like you could hear the cogs (laughs) in my brain, because you've talked before about being able to enjoy a narcissist. Mm-hmm. So actually be able to have very healthy boundary relationships with a narcissist. And I and I think because maybe where I was at and have been, I was like, I don't understand. It wasn't my time. But actually, I in thinking about the book and the way that you lay this out, I was thinking, actually, a lot of this is about building an emotional toolkit, yes. building um, uh, an emotional resilience to the world, which includes crappy personalities, including those that are narcissistic. And so actually, this really is about building yourself from within so that you can navigate the world and deal with pretty much anybody. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after this short break.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
3: To find out if it's right for you. And so, actually, this really is
0: about building yourself from within so that you can navigate the world and deal with pretty much anybody.
1: Mm -hmm. And listen, I am not saying that I, I do this for a living. I have this down to a well honed ability. And to this day, because of how my nervous system has been sort of shaped by numerous, you know, significant interactions with narcissistic people that I, I I still don't do well. So their conduct, their dismissiveness, their minimization, their entitlement, all of it their their all of it, it still hurts. So but but. As you said, this is an inside job. We work on ourselves. We say, "I know this about myself." So, great example would be: we know our strengths and we know our weaknesses because all together that makes who we are. So it is the kind of thing we say: this sort of situation is upsetting for me. This sort of dynamic. I don't do well with this. So this may not be a healthy thing for me to persist in. Now, we may not always have that choice, but I have to say the older we are, the little, we do have a little bit more choice in, in, in some of the relationships we initiate. Family, not so much. Sometimes workplace, not so much. But even in those circumstances, the problem with narcissistic relationships before we understand them, right, is we get defined by them more than we get defined by ourselves. Once we know what they are, we can say, I do know who I am. I do know what I'm about. And then there's a moment at which people say, in order to spend time with this person, I have to abandon myself. So I'm gonna have to make a choice here. The more I'm with this person, the less I am me. And that is sort of a guiding principle I give to therapists who work with a client's going through narcissistic abuse. I say, the more they need to, the more time they spend with a narcissistic person, the more they have to distance from their true selves, or it doesn't work because it you just it's too much. You can't be in your true self and be going through this kind of circumstance. So a lot of this is, who are you? What do you stand for? What are you about? What's your personality? What do you, like, how do you go through the world? What do you need? Those, and, and being able to articulate what you need and not feeling guilty for articulating what you need. That in and of itself is Herculean for people, right? But the other thing to keep in mind, Emma, and this is something I talk about a lot, there's a whole chapter in the book on being becoming narcissist resistant, right? Because even if you get through the relationship you're in and you heal from it, or you get through the relationship and you don't even feel like you may be fully healed, but you actually understand it, right? You do all of those things. What happens then is that you are going back into a world where probably, I don't know, I mean, it's I think it's reasonable to assume that probably... of people out there are narcissistic enough to be a headache, right? That's a spitball number. We don't have good data on this. So you go out in the world and I say to people, listen, the way everyone out now is like, I've got to get the perfect kale smoothie from the perfect kale smoothie spot, And I've got to get my vegetables (laughs) sourced from this perfect farm. And I got to get the perfect this. And I have to carry the right bag. And I have to go to the right gym. Like people are so discerning about so many things in their life, what they wear, what they eat, but they're not discerning about who they spend time with. I'm thinking if you're going to put that much effort into getting your coffee from a specific coffee place, can't you put that much effort into discerning how you spend time with, who you spend time with, really, if they're behaving in a way you're like, yeah, no, this is not, this doesn't feel, this again, this doesn't feel safe. This feels too familiar to what it was before. This is a one person show. This is not a reciprocal relationship. Then, then listen to that. This is almost, then that's junk food. Mm -hmm. And then when you have the relationship, where it is reciprocal and loving and all of those things, you put the time into it. I had, the, I had a recent experience, I'm aware, I have been interacting with a friend because I live far away. I don't interact with her as, as much as I, I want to. And she did something recently that was so overwhelmingly compassionate and empathic. I'm so busy. I'm, I'm barely like, I'm I, going to the bathroom has to be scheduled for me, Right and doing this thing for the friend was going to take some time out of my day but to do it the recipro- sorry to do it the reciprocity that came back at me the back and forth the elegance of it it was like to me it was like drinking vintage wine like it was a beautiful human interaction and that beautiful human interaction It was taking time out of my day. It was actually a little bit stressful because it was requiring me to do something on a computer that wasn't working. I didn't even view it as stress. I'm like, I have to do this. Like, this is so – so I'm saying I'm giving that as the alternate, Mm -hmm. that sometimes we are asked to do things, but because it's embedded in this really high-quality human relationship – It's great. And we grow from it because that person did wonderful things and I do wonderful things and we back and forth and do this. That's possible. But I think what we all get caught in is that unfixable problem of the person who takes and takes and takes. And I think we really get into that childlike sense of I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do so much more that they're going to know that I'm the best. at at some point it's just sort of a it's broken it's not working and it and I know people find that to be dismissive but they're not thinking about that other relationship I was I all all of our time should be going into those relationships as much as we can and I I call it the 90-10 rule and the 90-10 rule is that most people put 90% of their time into their most toxic relationships and put 10% of their time into their healthy, loving relationships. Like the one I was just sharing with you, flip the math, put 90% into those healthy relationships because you're going to get so much back. It's like, it's like this account that gives you like 25% interest. Like it just keeps giving back and then, then phone it in to the narcissist. Like, don't get into it with them don't try to read their mind. Don't try to do it perfect for them. They're never going to appreciate it. So if you could even flip the 90-10, you can't completely do nothing for them because you got to keep the relationships going, but you can keep it clipped and yep, sure. Great. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. But recognize that those other relationships, that's where your time needs to go.
0: So I guess the question there is why is it so intoxicating? Why is it so seductive? to put in 90% and get nothing mm-hmm. back when as as you rightly say it is simply it's something we simply wouldn't countenance in any other relationship or dynamic or any not even relationship or dynamic any other transaction mm-hmm. in our lives financial whatever it might be yeah
1: so there is one transaction though we we tolerate this 90 10 all the time And maybe not all the time because not everybody does it, but many people have done it. And we tolerate it and people line up to do it. You know what it is? It's called a casino.
0: (laughs) called a slot machine.
1: Okay? And we go and we take our hard-earned money and we give it away. Why? Because there's a possibility for the big win. We might Mm -hmm. win it all. Million dollars, car, right? That's why. And it's fun. It's fun when you're doing it because that possibility is always like, it's not so fun when you lose. And then when you lose a lot, you're like, what the hell did I just do? I just spent all my money. I could have spent that on something else. And that's usually how a person feels after a narcissistic relationship. So we do this all the time. It's called intermittent reinforcement. And intermittent reinforcement is the idea of human beings are motivated by rewards. We're like rats in a maze in a way, right? You just got to figure out what is rewarding to that particular human being. Money's rewarding for most of us. And so when the rewards are consistent, right? I put a dollar in, I get two dollars back. I put a dollar in, I get two dollars back. And it happens like that. That's nice, right? But that's not interesting. And it's not exciting. And it's going to be steady, right? But When it's, I put a dollar in, nothing comes. I put a dollar in, nothing comes. I put a dollar in, nothing comes. I put a dollar in, $10 comes. I'm like, ooh. And then a dollar in, a dollar in. But then they say, by the way, if you keep doing this, you might get a million dollars. And it's the possibility you say what makes it so intoxicating at one point it was intoxicating the narcissistic relationship especially in the romantic realm sometimes even in the friendship realm quite fa- frankly in the beginning can feel like everything we ever wanted this person listens the way they want they show up the way we want it's a fairy tale why it is that so many of us as adults are still holding on to the idea of the fairy tale that was sold to us when we were six years old is beyond me. And I think it is, I think what it is, it's like a primal need to want to be taken care of, right? Someone's going to sweep us off our feet and take care of everything. It's understandable. That's, I think that's a, it's an inner child kind of thing, right? But we, we want that. And the narcissistic people often deliver on that. They're, they can be very, they can have a lot of conviction. They can have a lot of certainty. They can be very confident, charming, charismatic, attractive. We sort of, they, they look great on paper, all those things that we want. And narcissistic people have this uncanny ability to listen to you and figure out what matters to you. Mm-hmm. So they start giving you that thing, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm finally getting the thing. Well, it's because they listen to you and it becomes a tactic. Versus an attunement, right? There's a difference. And so the, so then over time, over time, you're like, you're falling in love with this sort of fantasy person that they've created. And, but it's not real because then two, three, four months in, they start to devalue you. And, and that's, but now you're into the intermittent reinforcement. Because initially it's like that slot machine entice you because it's a casino and there's shiny lights and people might win and everyone's dressed up and isn't this cool. And this is so fun. That's what drew you in. And then you start playing the game, and you are like, oh, okay, this isn't going great, but I'm going to try. And every so often there's a payout that that payout in a relationship might be, you had a great weekend. You went on a little holiday on the, you know, four days away that you, um, uh, you watched a movie together and snuggled. You know, sometimes it gets little smaller and smaller. Things keep you in the game. You, you like the way you like having sex with them. But whatever those things are, those little wins, they get you through all the losses. And after a while, you're hanging out waiting for the wins, or you, and you're recovering from the losses. And that's intermittent reinforcement. It creates something called the trauma bond, and that's very hard to break. But honestly, it's the relationships where a dollar in, two dollars out, a dollar in, two dollars out, a dollar over time. You're gonna come out way ahead. But it's not exciting.
0: No. And it's actually it's funny you talk about the gambling analogy or the comparison because I went to Las Vegas for the first time last oh, year. Oh,
1: goodness. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And
0: I walked through a casino at 6 a.m., which is a great time to walk through a casino. And what really struck me, Dr. Romney, was uh, the the vacancy on people's faces it wasn't buzzing it wasn't like a Martin Scorsese film people were (laughs) not wearing incredible Roberto Cavalli dresses people (laughs) were in sports jackets I saw a lot of members only and they were staring into the middle distance and it was it was almost zombie-esque I mean this is my first I was really quite I, I wanted to get the hell out of there
1: Yeah. No, I, it's funny. I actually like, i happen to be someone who loves to play blackjack. I really do. I like the math of it and sort of watching the other people. And I'm thinking it's almost like a hundred dollars to play, to get on the table and then sort of see where it takes me and treating it that way. But I feel the same way as you. And I think the more I've done this work in narcissistic abuse, the more what I see is that these all look like hollowed out people who've been through a narcissistic relationship, and they have because all night they've been chasing something. But your to your the simple answer to that question you ask is why 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 are we so drawn into something where there's a zero percent return? Is because there's a possibility, and possibility might be one of the most enticing things that there is,
0: and that possibility leads to that bond that then is tough to to break. Which is why it's so difficult. Okay, so you, you use the expression there as well, hollowed out, which I think, mm-hmm. again, is perfect to really sort of describe what you do with the book, which is you you allow somebody to rebuild what mm-hmm. was removed from the hollow. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if someone... There's, a, there's actually a part of it like understanding your backstory. And I think that can be quite confronting to feel broken after the end of a narcissistic dynamic and then... First of all, dealing with that and then realizing that perhaps that wouldn't have happened if other things had, like going to excavating your past
1: mm-hmm. and
0: previous things that have hurt you. I mean, it's not easy work, is it?
1: Oh, it's not work. It's, it's it, to, to really do the healing work from narcissistic relationships. It is very painful because this isn't as simple as. You've been educated about it and now everything's going to be fine because really what it does, it means you're really plumbing the depths of your soul and you're thinking like, okay, I can see where this came out of childhood. I can see how much I've devalued myself and held myself back in my own life. And I think there's a lot of grief. So that's what I'm saying. The grief is layers. Mm -hmm it's not just the grief about the lost relationship it's the grief about your own lost potential and people I I, I, listen I've worked with people who are in their 60s and 70s who had grew up with a narcissistic parent who were in a long-term narcissistic marriage and they're sort of looking backwards and the hard piece of it is can, can you not get lost in the grief and the regret about the time lost or say I am now going to do the things that matter to me right and so I think that 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 sense of so many losses because these relationships basically tell us you are not worthy. You cannot, you don't deserve, you don't get to have needs. And there's a lot of shaming, shaming, shaming all around that. It's a lot of programming to let go of. And, and frankly, Emma, I do, cause I, I run a large um, healing program for survivors of narcissistic abuse. You know, that one of the themes that comes back is people are very tentative in their lives. They find trust to be difficult going forward. I'm going to be frank with you. If you do the healing right, there's going to be a long period of time you don't trust because now you're more discerning, and the discerning initially you're going to overcorrect, right? And so I think that it's a it you you go through the worlds differently. You know what people are capable of, but when you fully sort of settle into yourself. This is. I don't mean to be dismissive when I say this. You almost need people less because you know who you are. So that's when you can be discerning. Does that make sense? Because you're like, I don't need to pay, spend low quality time with someone today. Like, I'm good. I would actually rather stay home and or take a walk by myself because I know who I am and I know what I need versus I need to be at the thing and I need to be seen doing this and I have to be with people like you become comfortable a little bit more comfortable with yourself and you become more compassionate with your own story that I think that one of the most important things about healing is that you learn to care for your own wounds. You learn to care for your inner child. You learn to speak to yourself differently. You you care for yourself because you, something was done to you. And when we're harmed in those psychological ways, we carry those wounds within ourselves and within our bodies for a long time. And you learn to honor that. And so... I think that all of those things happen. And there's a there's a really beautiful kind of a softening and a focus that you see in long-term survivors. But there's also a tentativeness. It always reminds me of sort of a someone walking on very thin ice. Like each step, like, is this is this ice gonna hold my weight? And there's a carefulness, but there's also an awareness of what matters to people. And and like I said, I, I for lack of a better way to say it, I think so, really in the long term, as much as a healing hurts. When people get to the other side, they no longer suffer fools.
0: That's that's very interesting. And hopefully that that is definitely the case. And I want to talk about something personal here in the hope that enough people listening identify with it. Otherwise, I'm just being very self-involved myself. But um, I would have said that 15 years ago, I couldn't spend time by myself. So I would come home from work on a Friday and I would almost just go into standby. I might as well have just stood inside the doorway and just sort of just than asleep standing up and then waited until Monday morning and gone back out of the door. I didn't know what to do with my free time. So I would want to be with other people. And I think that, uh, that I've alluded to, well, not even alluded to, I've said it quite clearly, going through what felt like the dynamic that we've talked about and coming out of the other side. I now don't feel like that because part of the healing was enjoying the time, I spent with myself as opposed to needing to enjoy the time with someone else because I got that kind of buzz from them. And I'm not saying that Taylor Allison Swift stole my motto from therapy, but my motto is you're on your own kid. And and I find that very empowering because actually that's great. If I'm on my own, that's great, but it used to terrify me. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this and maybe they're uh, nodding along to everything that you're saying about the dynamic that you're describing and they're seeing it in their own lives. Is one of the fundamental questions that one has to ask oneself is, can I spend time by myself and am I okay with that? Yeah,
1: yeah. So again, in the book, I actually get into the whole idea of the power of solitude. One of the mistakes people make in healing is they sometimes jump into a new relationship very quickly. Um, They try to surround themselves with people. People can be a drug. They can distract us. They can keep us from sitting with these really uncomfortable feelings, but the discomfort is where the magic happens. The discomfort, the being with the feelings, recognizing that a feeling can't overwhelm you, but it's a signal. And it is, it's in its life. Like it's, and to me, this is why I tell people, feelings are so beautiful because it means you're alive. It means that there's things happening to you. It means that you're aware of the things. It beats being numb all the time that there is a, but, but it hurts at times too, just like a an amazing hike or a physical experience or something those things can hurt too but they can have tremendous return and mm-hmm. so anything worth doing does hurt learning something new we feel foolish like right? I don't know how to do it. when we were learning to speak a new language and we're stumbling along with the words we feel foolish or learning to I don't know ski or something we're falling down like a child would learning to walk so but that ability to be alone Is the one thing we actually don't teach people. We pathologize it. The West is very extroverted. We value gathering and above all else. Now, don't get me wrong. The pandemic, the pandemic taught us one thing. Solitude, too much of forced solitude really harmed people, right? We need each other. We needed, we we missed each other. And this is why we're trying to do so many things together now. That's wonderful. But the thing that enhances that togetherness is some aloneness. And most survivors, Emma, find that, Time alone is exactly when their nervous system can kind of calm down a little bit, right? Because survivors of narcissistic abuse are so wired to please other people. Are they okay? Are they okay? What can I do with them? I hope they're okay. Why are they looking at me like that? We became so attuned to monitoring every micro signal in our environment that we're exhausted all the time, even when we're with healthy people. So the alone time is sometimes the time that we can say like, ah, For a minute, I can do things the way I want to. I can keep the volume. I can keep the temperature. I can keep the activity level where I need it to be. And view that as a time where we can come back into ourselves, check in with ourselves. It The alone piece is huge for healing for survivors because of that hypervigilance, that constant awareness of other people that most survivors of narcissistic abuse have. And they're not even aware it's exhausting them, but they'll often say, why am I so tired? I'm like, it's because you're always attending to other people's needs and you don't even know it. Yeah.
0: I would say I uh, just on that describing what it felt like coming um, and actually this also applied with coming out of a really um, fantastic job, a very high profile job where I was for 10 years, I remember coming out of it and realized not realizing that that job had become stabilizers like I was a bicycle and I hadn't realized that I had stabilizers on the whole time and then I'd go out and do the things that I had done before and I was a mess I couldn't I couldn't keep my balance. And I think that I don't know if that characterizes the life post narcissist.
1: Oh, absolutely. you do you, It is absolutely that that sense of balance. but it is but to get to there, it hurts. Hmm. right? So it's always difficult to get anyone through a journey where I'm telling you the other side is going to feel great. You're going to feel lighter. it's going to be terrific, but this in-between part is going to hurt and it's going to hurt a lot, and it's going to mean shaking up your life, and it's going to be changing the status quo. I think one thing that's really hard for people who are going through the process of healing is they lose people, and people that, you know, and when I say lose people, you're going to lose different groups of people, right, because one group, group of people that people lose is the people who are almost thinking like, Oh, your whole thing about toxic and narcissistic relationships, you're being ridiculous. So it's almost like the enablers, right? That you don't need to distance from them. You're being, um, you're being I don't know, cocky or headstrong or something like that. This is you. This is a problem with you. So that's that group you're going to lose because they're going to try to pull you back into that narcissistic vortex or that way of thinking, right? The other group you're going to lose, and this I don't mean this to sound dismissive. It might sound dismissive. I don't mean it to, is of the people you outgrow is you once you really start this process and you go within yourself you might find some of the people around you to be banal to be like really you know this is this is it and you you've been through something in fact the analogy i use in the book is that of the hero's journey right the hero's journey which which is what i actually do think that healing from narcissistic abuse is is a person feels called initially. And in this case, the person's like, I can't go on like this. But in that process of trying to heal is you're slaying demons. You're having crises of faith. You're having the dark night of the soul. You have fellow travelers who come and go, therapists and other helpers. But at the other end, when you come out the other end healed, you're not the same you. And so you realize how much that, you know, some of your old relationships It's not that you're being dismissive of them, but you may not spend the same kind of time with them. And you realize in some ways they were allowing you to keep that old status quo. So people will say, yikes, like I'm losing more people than just this primary narcissistic relationship. There's a lot. And I said, yeah, this is the status quo. Isn't about one person. There's an entire system around you. And it's like an earthquake. Everything shifts, everything shifts. And that everything shifts piece is, it's, it's also quite destabilizing for people. I try to help people think of it as sort of clearing space. You know, again, you're not telling this person, like, I've outgrown you. It's nothing. You're not being contemptuous. You're saying, I am now seeing why I've had a hard week and I don't know that I want to have that conversation right now. Like, I think I just want to give myself some time to just rest, relax, do what I need to do. But I think that we we start to realize that there's limits in, in some of the relationships we have. And that's okay. And that's okay.
0: One of the things I was going to ask you, actually, was that can can you create a narcissist by the sense that you just you are a people pleaser? And I don't necessarily think it's that simple or binary, but I made when you talked about you lose people, I think if you are a certain type of person who shows up in your relationships, always giving, mm-hmm. giving, giving, mm-hmm. it would make sense that some people might take advantage of that in the way that a narcissist is known to, and others might just really enjoy it. And then when it changes, I remember seeing a therapist and them saying to me, well, of course your friends aren't enjoying you anymore because you're
1: the the product you are now isn't what they paid for. That's right. Or it's <laughs> it's because again, this is where though, like I said, healthy people, healthy people in a relationship will look at a person who's overextending themselves and have enough empathy and self-awareness to say, sweetie, slow down. Like, no, you've been knocking yourself out. They might say, we're going to order pizza, or I'm going to bring something over, or you need to get some sleep. They're seeing you. They're seeing what you're going through. They, they don't just sit there and just sort of drink it all in. You know, they'll check in with you. And so that helps you feel seen and heard. So the, when you're a doer, giver, fixer in a relationship, which a lot of folks who've been through narcissistic abuse are, your, your therapist is 100% right is that what you do realize is that some of these relationships only worked when you were jumping up and doing stuff all the time. And one of the pieces of guidance I give in the book is find your no. And find your no means you don't have to get up and do the dishes. You brought all this food to this party. You came on time, you helped set up. And people will say, I felt like I was gonna die as I watched those dishes pile up. I said, yep, and you're gonna tolerate that because those dishes are not your problem. There were other people who showed up late ate all the food. They can help with the dishes, but this is not even your house. This isn't even your party. What are you doing? So that's an example of the finding your no, or somebody's asking you something that is just simply you cannot do. Somebody could take a taxi from the airport. And yet you're you're suggesting you wake up at 4am, despite having gone to bed at midnight the night before you'll say, Hey, listen, I'm going to set up a taxi for you. I'm going to show you how to take a taxi. I'm going to put you in a taxi to the airport. People like, Oh my gosh, I feel so bad. I said, they got to the airport. And and they see that you went to bed at midnight. So it's a that it's finding your no is giving yourself permission. Now, if you keep finding your no in a healthy way, right? Being aware of your roles and responsibilities too, you are gonna lose people because people got so used to you sort of being sort of a handy-dandy personal assistant slash butler that got everything done. They're not mean people, they're not bad people, they're not narcissistic people, but a lot of that relationship was predicated on you fixing everything. So if you stop making all the plans and stop making all the reservations and stop setting everything up, nothing may get set up. And people like, how come we don't have plans? And if you're always the one taking responsibility for it, it may, some people might rise up and say, oh no, let me do this. She always does it. Of course it didn't get done. She's busy. And some people might just sort of sit there and the friendship group might crumble without one person doing all the work.
0: Yikes and yowzers we've hurtled through an hour so but i do want to ask you about this being the third book um on this topic mm-hmm. and how important it was for you because I've, I've talked about you being the champion of the victim of the narcissist and this feels this really does feel like the the most useful hand holding and acknowledgement of something that doesn't get enough attention I think I think we we linger mm-hmm. we I think not just about this subject but we linger in the labeling phase right now as yeah. if that makes us experts right and we do not focus on recovery and you know I'm a fan you know I love chatting to you but this really does feel like a you're going to be okay yes it's yes. it's it's all right it's not you here let me hold your hand mm-hmm. while you mm-hmm. get to the other side of this, mm-hmm. because the other mm-hmm. side is beautiful.
1: It is absolutely beautiful, and I'm so thank you so much for putting it that way, Emma. No one's put it that beautifully to me. Which is, this book is my attempt to hold everyone's hand as you go through this, because I've seen it happen, Emma. I've seen it. I have worked with survivors, watch you know, watch survivors go through it, and then nothing more beautiful. Like it is why I get up in the morning when they. Will email me and they'll say, hey, you know how like I, my, my ex told me I would never be able to make this film and it's never going to happen. And it's, you know, like I'm ridiculous and all that. And I believe them. They'll say my first feature film was about to premiere. And I'm like, I mean, I'm getting teary just thinking about it. It's, I know in every single survivor is this possibility, but when you're in the middle of a storm, you truly believe it's never going to stop raining. And I'm telling you, there's a sunny sky and it's hard. I've been through this process myself. And in my darkest days, I ne- I have to tell you, I never dreamed I'd write one book, let alone multiple books, right? Because I thought you're foolish, you're ridiculous, you can't do this. There was a lifetime of programming. And at some level, you just, the, the thing in you pops out when it's no longer being held back by all of these sorts of negating voices. But it is exactly what it is. It's me trying to extend a hand to everyone because I feel firmly believe that people can heal from this not only heal but thrive and once you can get those voices cut out everything's possible
0: and i think the other thing i wanted to add about it as well is that i think that it can be again really seductive to focus on the harm that was done to you by somebody to focus on the nasties. and i remember once <laughs> dming someone on instagram dark Knight of the souls like will they ever will they ever get their comeuppance will they ever pay for what they've done and I think what I re- they really hammered home here was it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. It's about hard. you.
1: That's mm. hard. I I, I want to say more about that, that piece, that will they get their comeuppance? You know, we know, in fact, Judith Herman wrote a beautiful book about trauma last year. And one of the things she comes up with is this idea of the lack of justice and how trauma survivors do need some form of justice. Right. And when it comes to narcissistic relationships in that sort of sort of what we consider sort of that kind of fundamental level of justice right that people don't get that sometimes everything keeps going well for the narcissist they quickly find a new partner they quickly plan a wedding they quickly go into their new life their honeymoon look at us we're so in love i my my you know the classic narcissistic play is after telling you that you were the love of their life. Then they move on to someone else and they say, I've finally found the love of my life. And you're like, what? Like, it's, it, you're, everyone is just so replaceable in that space. And so I think that the, for so many people, they'll say, like, oh my gosh, they're just, they're just going into their best life or they got the promotion or they're getting the prize or they're getting the, the big house or whatever it is that they get. They, it feels like they win. Right. And I, for a lot of folks, it's the, that's why there's exercises in the book to say, you can think that I can, I will be willing to set a clock that this next relationship is going to fall down exactly the way yours did, because it has to, this is a consistent style. Every time it does, you just have to, but by the time their new relationship falls apart, my goal is you're healed and you don't care. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like you're, be, sadly, in these processes, in some ways, one thing that slows the healing down is you don't always get that justice piece. Mm. You I, and over time, as you heal, you get more indifferent. So when things fall apart for them, you sort of roll your eyes. You're like, I ac- actually do not care what happens to this person. That's a good place to get to. And some things that can move that along are things like I hate to say it, writing down all the terrible things they did to you. So when you look at that list, and some people find it triggering and upsetting, but most people say, Yeah, when I saw it all one place, that whatever this person's gone on to, I'm not in this anymore. And that's its own form of justice.
0: I know I have to let you go because listeners, Dr. Romney always gets up super early to do these conversations with me. She's in L.A. She's like 7 a.m. that we started this. Um, But I've already said it, but I just do want to remind you that the link to the book, which I think we've established you need to buy immediately, is in the show notes and the link to your YouTube channel. But um, it's always honestly, you are such an amazing guest, always so giving and but just thank you for sharing all of your insights and expertise on this subject because it's um it's a difficult one and you make it you make it seem less difficult
1: well i appreciate that so emma it is it it, so much emma it is difficult people do heal and listen i also believe you can heal whether you stay in the relationship or go i know a lot of what i was saying is if you go if you go a lot of people listening are saying well i may not be able to go. And that's okay. Entire chapter in the book on healing if you stay. Some of the pitfalls, but some of the uh, absolute understanding and necessity why not everyone can can walk away from all of these relationships. So it doesn't matter what your circumstance Once you can really get this and go through the grief, there is, a, there is a clearer path forward where you can actually live fully into your your individuated, unique self, not in their circumstance.
0: How incredible. How incredible. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Gun Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma emmaguns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.